this uh, three Sundays, uh, we are going through uh, a short series on Titus. We started last week. Uh, we talked about how uh, Paul, Apostle Paul, left Titus uh, in a way as a church planter to establish um, a church, what it looks like a church, and that is, um, you know, our, uh, our situation as a church plant, we are slowly transi transitioning from being a church planting project to an actual church, and we understood last week the need to establish leaderships in the church, particularly elders. So Titus 1 talks about the need to have elders in the church who are going to stand firm in the faith, who are going to teach faithfully sound doctrine, and who are going to rebuke false teaching. And if you are going to look at Titus chapter 1 uh, and you see it in a vacuum, a lot of people ha would have reservations and would have a lot of objections. Some people might say, some people might say, you know, that's why I disagree with Christianity because it's uh, promoting um, male chauvinistic uh, culture. Yeah, and, and, and that's why, you know, Christianity is such a, a bigoted uh, religion because it's you know, promoting, uh, you know, men are better than women. That, you know, in, in the church, uh, women don't have value. That's why, you know, you keep talking about um, uh, male eldership and, and, and things like that. You know, if you're going to read through the whole Titus, you will understand it's, that is not the case. In fact, and, and I say this to, to many of you, while it is true that discipleship and evangelism in the church comes primarily in the preaching of the gospel from biblically qualified men called by God, affirmed by the church, and this is what we uh, believe in espouse, this does not mean that women and other uh, unqualified men and people in the church are irrelevant in the, in the gathering. Uh, and in fact, we will see that, you know, especially in, in this text, we will see that each person called by God to belong in a local church is a means for godliness for one another. So what we see in the book of Titus, and Paul already talks about this in his salutation, that right doctrine produces right living. We cannot give a dichotomy of those two that one will say, you know, I'm just talking about good living and good behavior. That's all I'm worried about. I, I will not worry about proper doctrine. And the other would say, you know, it's important to have right doctrine because uh, this is what the Bible teaches. Well, we don't have to do false dichotomy of those two things. They go together. Right doctrine produces right living. And in chapter 2, we see it ought to be seen and practiced in the local church. So how does the household of God interact with one another knowing that we uh, ought to be taught with right doctrine and it will produce right living? So here's the big idea of our text today. Well, Titus 2, and in fact, the whole Bible presents to us a pattern for godly living as expressed in the local church. But this godliness is not an empty external display of good behavior. 
That's not the point. Rather, it is grounded on the grace of God made possible by Christ. Let me repeat that because that's our, you know, if you were going to remember one thing, that's it. That the Bible presents to us a pattern for godly living. It's not an option for Christians, it's essential. And it's expressed in the local church. But this godliness is not an empty external display of good behavior. It is grounded on the grace of God made possible by Christ. So let's break it down. Let's break this text into three things so we will uh, understand better the, the text. So you have that on our, uh, on our screen. We will talk about the pattern for godly living or pattern for godliness. How does the church express that within the household of God? Number two, the promise, what is our assurance that it is possible to live godly lives? And number three, what price that is, uh, is at stake uh, when we are able to live godly lives? All right, so the pattern, so the pattern, the promise, and the price of godliness. Let's talk about them one by one. So you see here, uh, clear, practical uh, instruction by Paul to Titus to teach specific people in the church of what it means to live godly lives. So there's merit, there's merit, as you can see in this text, there's merit for preaching that's very practical, right? Uh, preaching doesn't always have to be systematic or... or you know, highfalutin, high doctrine. There's space to preach very practical pastoral uh, uh, instruction to the church. And he's addressing older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and even bond servants or slaves. But aside from uh, instructing these uh, people, these sectors in the church, we must because we might miss this out, we must remember that Paul is also giving instruction to Titus. Look at, again, we'll look at chapter, uh, verse 1. But as for you, meaning in contrast to what we have seen in chapter 1, you know, the profile of a false teacher, as for you, you are to proclaim things that are consistent with sound teaching or sound doctrine. Paul will repeat the same instruction in the last verse, in verse 15. Proclaim these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So this whole chapter is sandwiched by an instruction by Paul to Titus to proclaim. Again, it's emphasizing the need for the pure preaching of the gospel in, in an office of an elder. Because that is the primary role of an elder or a pastor. And, you know, sadly, I've learned this, late, you know, recently in my pastoral ministry. I thought, you know, preaching is just one part of the pastoral ministry. And, you know, I was more concerned about, you know, managing the programs and activities. I missed out the primary responsibility of being a pastor 
as a you know, teaching sound doctrine and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. But he's not just teaching in the pulpit. Look at the middle, the middle portion of this uh, chapter. Make yourself an example. This is the verse 7 and 8. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent, the opponent here is the opponent of the gospel, not necessarily yung haters ni Titus, not necessarily your haters in social media, but the opponent of, of the gospel, those who oppose the message of the good news. So that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. So here we see Titus is instructed by Paul to teach both formally in the pulpit, in the church, in the gathering of God's people, and informally in the way he lives. Again, going back to our Titus chapter 1, elders are men of integrity. What they say is what they do. And so because Titus is instructed uh, towards that, he is, a, he is also bound to instruct uh, certain specific categories or uh, segments in the church. And he starts with older men. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, sound in faith, love, and endurance. And in this context, older men uh, are 50 years old. Okay? In this context, older men are considered you know, 50 years old and above. And they are presumably married. But why would Titus have to teach older men to be self-controlled, to be worthy of respect, sensible, sound in faith and love and endurance. If they are already older men, why do we have to teach them? Well, I guess that implies that Christian maturity does not come naturally with age. In fact, in our culture, we are very forgiving of either the young children and the older Men, we we dismiss you know the you know the the rowdiness of you know toddlers running around and 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 shouting. We're okay with that because we expect that. We also dismiss you know older men with the way they live or when they when they say vulgar things. We say ah okay lang matanda na kasi yan. <laughs> Hayaan mo na matanda na kasi. So we're, you know, in our culture, we're quite dismissive of that. So, you know, to, to instruct, for Titus to instruct older men, it means, you know, because this, not come, this does not come naturally, we must train and dis discipline people towards this. In fact, you know, one commentary, one study Bible uh, describes this to say, the overall picture of older men is of Christian dignity and vibrant faith. Christian dignity and vibrant faith. In other words, in other words, the church needs older men that younger men would want to hang out with. No, 
uh, when I was uh, when I was ordained, uh, I was asked to to give you know some acknowledgments and and thank you so to speak. And uh, the people I thanked are the older men in my lives who spent really time to 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 discipline me to to show me what godly character looks like. And the Lord has been gracious to me that he has surrounded me with godly men. You know, if I look at my life, I, I'm so amazed how God has surrounded me with pastors. With pastors. And I didn't have any, it was not in my, uh, in my family line to be a pastor. My, my dad was not a pastor. He's an elder of a small church uh, when I was growing up. I did not grow up in a you know faithful uh, Christian home. Uh, you know my circumstances does not permit me to to be faithful in the church. But the Lord has surrounded me with faithful men, and and that has been a really great influence for me. So the church needs older men. So uh, for those who are almost fifty and those who are fifty. <laughs> You know, we look up to you. We look up to you uh, to be men of vibrant faith and dignity. How about older men? So let's move to old, I sorry, older women. Verse 3. In the same way, meaning equal capacity, because you will hear this again. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers not slaves to excess drinking. So in other words, these are women that earned respect of the community. Hindi sila marites. Hindi sila manginginom. And, and, and this is, you know, if you see this in light of uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, this is the reason why Paul uh, is... Uh, instructing the church for women to be silent. It's because there are women causing divisions with their slandering. So we need also women who are, you know, respectable and what they are communi communicating are not lies and not accusations with one another against, against the church, against the, one another. But it's not just their behavior, it's also their ability. Look at uh, the following verse. They are to teach what is good. See, there's a teaching capacity of, for women in the church. Maybe not in the pulpit, maybe not as an elder, but they are called as well to teach. Who are they to teach? They are to teach younger women. Younger women. So we go now to younger women. Uh, the instruction is for the older women to teach younger women. And I know this is a touchy subject. So let me read verse 4 and 5. So train or teach young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, Pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. You know, again, if you, if you single out, 
you know, verses like this, some objections would come up and say, you know, that's, that's very limiting to women. Pastor, we live in, a, in modern times. So we must advocate women empowerment. Women must not be, you know, uh, limited to their homes. Is the church producing Stepford Wives? Are, are you familiar with Stepford Wives? Right? Right? So, for those who are unfamiliar, yung Stepford Wives is, you know, a movie in the 1970s. It was remade. Um, in, in, a, in a community uh, called Stepford, and the wives are fully, uh, and fully compliant to the men in the community. Then they realize you know, the, the women are actually androids. So, Are we producing Stepford wives in, in the church? Well, let me just first say na I, I, personally, I don't believe in the universal submission of women to men. The structure that God has ordained is for men to be leaders in the home and men to be leaders in the church. Meaning, wives are to submit to their husbands, not to every husband. Women are not are to submit to their husband, not to all men. Right? So, yun yung structure that we see. Actually, and, what, and, and, and this is my uh, response to that objection that, you know, this is very limiting to women. Christianity is actually at the forefront of women empowerment because we help women to fulfill their unique calling of nourishing and flourishing their own households. And to nourish and flourish the home is a beautiful and noble calling from God. It's a beautiful calling. It's a difficult calling. And biblically speaking, a woman faithfully nourishing her home is considered successful. And that, I believe, is the, the limitation. The modern view of a successful woman is someone who is climbing the corporate ladder, Who's, uh, uh, it, that is for me actually limiting because it implies that if you are not doing that, you are unsuccessful. So to view that you are caring for what God has entrusted to you, biblically speaking, you're successful. If you're caring for your home, if you're, if you're caring for your, uh, your children, your husband, you're successful, biblically speaking. But don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong, I understand there's space and even necessity for women to be in the workplace. There are women doctors, teachers, law enforcers, lawyers, social workers, and other uh, professions that are helpful to the flourishing of our culture. You are very much needed in the workplace. That's true, and I'm grateful for that. But caring for the home, if God has 
called you to be, you know, a homemaker, cannot be sacrificed at the expense of career development. No, no matter how great you are at your job, someone else can replace you. Someone else can replace you. But no one can take your place as the primary disciple maker of your children. No one can take your place in loving your husband. You don't want, to, <laughs> you don't want someone else to take your place, right? And the world knows this. The world knows that it's actually more empowering and more courageous for women to fulfill their God-given role. Which is why it's fewer in our generation, it's fewer and fewer people who desire to get married and have children. Fewer and fewer people. So it takes more courage, more faith in the Lord to care for the household. So ladies, you know, single ladies here, if you really want to show courageous spirit, if you want to show women empowerment, and exercise faith in the Lord, aspire to get married. Aspire to have children. I challenge you. It will, it will test your patience. <laughs> I have been testing my wife's patience for 11 years. Noah has been testing our patience for almost three years. <laughs> it's more courageous to do that. Let's talk about younger men. So again, yung younger men, younger women here, we're talking about 20s and 30s. Verse 6, likewise, meaning in the same capacity, urge the younger men to be sober-minded, in some of your translation, or self-controlled. Hala, unfair. Ang haba ng instruction dun sa younger women, ang iksinung sa younger men, isa lang. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Well, the term likewise or in the same way implies that, that the same instruction for, for older women, older men also applies. But with great emphasis on being self-controlled. So basically, uh, Paul is saying to Titus, you know, instruct the younger uh, men, you know, yes, all these things apply to them, but most importantly, most importantly, if there's one thing that they have to do, be self-controlled. Why? Because it is true then and it is true now that young men are easily ruled by their emotion. Because em and because emotions change very quickly, decisions and actions of a young man can also be very erratic. And sadly, this is affirmed. This is affirmed by, you know, the world's message. We need to instruct young men to be self-controlled because the message of the world is this. Go follow your heart. Follow your heart. Or, you know, make the most of life. You live only, you only live once. YOLO! And the, the implication of that, it's saying, and 
if you are in the marketing business and, and, I, and, and I study business and, and, and marketing, so you capitalize on that. The, the need for, you know, for, for young men to be missing out on life. So you tell them, oh, you know, you need, because you, you might miss out on uh, things in life because you only live once, you need to have full experience of life. And you're not uh, experiencing the fullness of life if you don't have the latest gadget. You don't, you're not experiencing the, the fullness of life if you haven't traveled to this place. You haven't experienced the fullness of life if you, are not, if you don't have a million in your bank account. That's the message of the world. You, 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 you are not really experiencing the fullness of life if you haven't skydived. You know, there's a line between courageous action and uncontrolled foolishness. And often, what separates the two is what motivates you to make such action. Are you making this bold move because my heart tells me so? <laughs> Are you making this bold move because you want to try it before it's too late? Because I'm missing out if I don't do this. Or are you making this courageous move because this is what will glorify the Lord in my life? Young men, you want to be courageous as well? Go and get married. <laughs> Have children. <laughs> you know, there's a... Julie and I uh, at, um, uh, participated in a, a leadership retreat for young students, so mga early 20s, uh, almost graduating in, 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 in the university. Uh, so one of the la last few days, Julie and I talked about marriage and relationship. They, so we just, basically we just shared our, our life and our story. And I told them, you know, we're not really the model of, you know, of, of good love, courtship, and marriage. Maybe you need to talk to someone else. Anyway, so at the end of that uh, talk, uh, one of the, the young men, a brilliant student uh, from UP, uh, approached me. Sabi niya, Pastor, you know, I, I don't think I'm getting married. I don't think getting married is really for me. I have so many things uh, planned in my life. Uh, I know my, my course, my program does not have any you know, very, very much opportunity in, in the Philippines. So I'm, it's very likely that I will go abroad and work there and I'll be successful there. My, you know, what if my job brings me to another country? What if I don't have time for dating? So maybe that's not really for me. So I asked him, how old are you? <laughs> and he said, well, I'm 22. <laughs> like a brother, you don't know what will happen in 10 years. <laughs> you might change your mind by then. Relax ka lang. <laughs> Relax ka lang. Take it, one at a time. Take it one step at a time. Go graduate. 
you know, uh, gain experience, uh, find a job, take it one at a time. To encourage younger men to be self-controlled and not be controlled by emotions and circumstances around them is to tell them, chill, brother, <laughs> chill. You don't have to have everything figured out. Your, your heart is not a trustworthy gauge of what's right for you. And this is why it is important for younger men to be in a discipling relationship with older men. Men of dignity, men of integrity, men of vibrant faith. Because they will see, you know, I don't ha really have to worry about all these things. I don't have to, you know, follow my heart. Because there's a better um, means for instruction and that is the word of God. So we have older men, older women, younger women, younger men. Now we go to servants. It seems like Paul uh, instructs Titus to give instruction as well to bond servants or in other translations, slaves, verse 9 and 10. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, meaning you're kumukupit but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Again, just like, you know, talking about younger women, this is slightly touchy, um, especially if you're in the Western context. People might say, you know, is Paul advocating slavery here? Why, why is he addressing, why are there slaves in the church? Well, First and foremost, we have to understand that there's a difference with the first century economy of bond servants to the Western understanding of slavery, All right? It's very different. Uh, bond servants during that time, even in Jewish or Greek culture, uh, these are slaves that have placed themselves voluntarily in service to someone's household because they don't have the means to pay their debt. So the means to pay their debt is through their service. And you know, the, the beauty of you know, the Old Testament and even the New Testament understanding of uh, bond servants and slaves, there's a, there's a year of jubilee that slaves and debt are to be released. And here's the interesting thing. These slaves are becoming Christians. They're becoming Christians. So it's possible that in one community in Crete, that in sitting in the community, in the gathering of the Lord's Day, the slave and his owner are sitting together as equals. They're equals. And that is surprising in that time. So just to have that in mind, the presence of slaves and employers in a Christian community viewed as equal, equals tells us, tells us that Paul is really not advocating slavery here. He's just recognizing that this is the economy of our time and this will eventually be eradicated. 
And he's singling out, you know, slaves here to, you know, if I'm going to imply this in our modern culture, you know, employers view themselves as slaves to their work. Uh, employees view themselves as slaves to their work. But to be reminded that, you know, we ultimately serve our king should not give us, you know, the pride and the authority to undermine our own earthly employers. But we serve the Lord by serving faithfully our earthly masters, so to speak. Here are my observations, just, you know, and... and I'll give some implications here. As Paul instructs Timothy, the pattern for godliness in, uh, in the household of God, and, and obviously this takes much of the preaching time and, and the, the, the text as well. Here are just some observation. Number one, godliness expressed in the household of God does not happen randomly. Instead, we see it happening with God-ordained structures that involves gender, age, and even life experience and vocation. So titles to older men, to younger men, titles to older women, to younger men, Titus teaching the band servants to continue to serve faithfully their masters. There's a structure here that we have to understand and, and affirm and, and submit to. Number two, growing in godliness is not exclusively a personal goal. It is a collective pursuit. It is not a person going to the gym, building muscles so that he can look in the mirror and say, look how good I am. It is a person going to the gym, building muscles so he can use the strength that he has to carry his brothers. Here's the implication of that. Christian maturity rarely happens. And perhaps if I may say so, even impossible outside the context of the local church. Godliness expressed and experienced happens in the context of the local church. Outside of that is unhealthy at best. If we are taking our means for godliness through the internet, or through our own personal uh, learnings without the context of brothers and sisters in the church, we might be doing more damage to our soul. So we need to surround ourselves with Christians from different stages of life, experiences, gender, vocation, to have a fuller experience and expression of godliness. We need that in the church. 
yes, it is helpful, and and I, you know, I believe in this. I I support this. It is helpful to have specialized small groups. So we have small groups for men. Uh, hopefully, you have small groups for women, uh, and and mixed group as well. But that should not replace an intentional life-on-life pilgrimage by the gathering of God's people together. I'm personally thankful that there are, you know, godly women in this church who has the capacity to to teach younger men, uh, younger women. Because obviously, I have so many limitations to, to teach younger women. I don't know what it means to be a young woman. <laughs> but older men, uh, older women, you know, can come alongside younger women. There was a time that, you know, as we were developing uh, this church planting project, one of the questions is this, what kind of church are you? What kind of church are you? What kind of church plant are you trying to develop? What, because I'm, you know, my, my background is in business and marketing. Ang, ang implication of question, what is your demographics? What is your target market? But because I want to be clear, I ask, what do you mean? What do you mean when you say, uh, what kind of church are you? So, so the person said, yeah, uh, what's, what are, which part of the demographics are, are you hitting? Are you a church for young professionals? Yeah, are you a church for young professionals? And so, you know, there are movements that are geared towards young professionals and there are movements that, in fact, there's a church that's geared towards specific, uh, you know, men only. Are you a church for young professionals? Are you a church for youth? Are you a church for, uh, you know, a specific segment? If I'm not mistaken, my response, we are a church for people who are in need of the gospel. And when people are drawn to Jesus and they see themselves belonging to the church, that's the church that I would want to be part of. Regardless of age, regardless of circumstances, regardless of vocation, regardless of gender. Obviously, as we start, and this is what it means for, for CRC Makati, as a church plant in the middle of the city, it will look like it will look like that we are a young church, that we are a church for young professionals. And more and more, I have problems with that term because what do you mean by young, <laughs> and what do you mean by professional? <laughs> it might look like that, that we are a church for the young generation, but remember. We will not be young forever. We will not be young forever. We may be filled with younger men and younger women, but I hope 
you know, in the future, we will be older men and older women in the church that's expressing Christian godliness. That younger women now in, in, in the church, like, you know, when Sam grows up, well, you're already grown up. <laughs> when you're already working, you look up to the younger men and women in the church and say, you know, I'm really thankful for her life. Pastor, these, uh, these instructions seem to be a high demand again, just like the qualification for elders. Is that really possible? Can we really express that in the church? Is that even worth trying? Can we just, you know, wing it? Can we just do our own thing? Well, our text gives us an assurance a promise that we can live godly lives. What do we, where do we see that? In verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, the same word that's used for older men, older women, older younger women, younger men, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Friends, Christ has come to free us from the bondage of living in sin. That's what it means for Paul to say the grace of God has appeared. He's talking about the first coming of Christ. And his coming does not just mean salvation for us. His coming also means we are now free from the bondage of sin. So look at, again, look at that verse 12. He is, Christ's coming enables us to be disciplined negatively to renounce ungodliness and positively to live upright godly lives. You know what that means? It means painful experiences in our lives, heartbreaks, brokenness, persecution, poverty. They are no longer weapons of evil, but are now means to shape us into Christ-likeness. They are, you know, muscles of faith, so to speak. And that's because Christ has come. Not only that, Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Again, that word appearing. And he's talking about the second coming of Christ. You know, that's our assurance that we can live godly lives, not just because Christ has made us, you know, able to live godly lives but also because Christ will return to complete the work that he started in us. And here's you know, some, uh, some of the things that also Paul mentioned in his other letters, Galatians uh, 6, 9, and 10. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone especially to those who are in the household of faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 
58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Friends, you're, you're striving for godliness. Your fight against sin, your fight against lust, your fight against, you know, uh, retaliating against your enemies, your desire to live godly lives, your daily desire to, to immerse yourself in the word of God, those things will never be in vain because God will complete what he started in you. And that's the promise that we can live godly lives. And you know what? It came at a cost for you to do that. It came at a cost for, for us to wait on that. And that's what we see as the price for godliness. Verse 14, this grace that has appeared and will appear is Christ himself who gave himself for us to redeem, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Brothers and sisters, this is the cause of our godliness. Christ has come, lived, and died on the cross not just for us to, to, to give permission for us to live godly lives, he actually gave himself as redemption for, so that we can live godly lives. So friends, let's see the church as the best fertile ground to grow in godliness. Let us see the cross as the price that enabled us to live godly lives and let us rejoice that because of Christ, our discipline and training for godliness will, is assured and will never be in vain. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that as we collectively understand what it means to be your people, we see that there are biblical patterns that we can follow. Thank you that it is not up to us to establish the church, but it is dependent on our overseer, the great shepherd of our soul. Lord, as you call us to be in uh, your household, help us fulfill our responsibilities are our calling whether as men as women i pray lord that we will uh, hold firm to your call for us also help us lord god live godly lives being assured that we are not our own but belong to our savior jesus christ who lived and died for us therefore we live for him and I pray, Lord, that this will be uh, a comfort to our souls when we, when we struggle with sin, when we try to develop disciplines for godliness. May this bring 
joy in us as well as we experience persecution, um, poverty, and, and different uh, heartbreaks. I pray, Lord God, that you will enable us to exercise and express godliness in the place that you have called us to be part of. This is our prayer with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.